Okay, for Lydia, uh, just before she begins, so feel free to stretch out an arm. I'm going to add lib. <laughs> it's not about to happen. Um, let's pray for Liz. I'll do an extended prayer instead while you're, while you're sorting that out. <laughs> Lord, we thank you so much um, that we can gather together tonight, that we can gather freely. Um, and I was actually just really struck earlier of Tim praying for what's happened in Nigeria and then talking about um, Alpha. And actually there are people around the world who are um, literally dying to tell people about Jesus. And we have just the most amazing opportunity to do that um, here. Um, so yeah, Lord, we just pray for tonight. Uh, we pray for Lydia as she brings the word. We pray that you just really speak so clearly through her. Amen. All set up. We're good. There we go. Hi, guys. I'd like to say that most of this outfit came from the clothes swap yesterday. So, yes, for the clothes shop. Okay. Um, do you want to grab a Bible? And we are in John chapter 4. And we're beginning this evening um, a series looking at John, the Gospel of John, and the I Am sayings that's going to track us through to Easter. So if you get hold of John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26, and that's, I think, around page 1006 of the Green Bibles, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, just as you're doing that, guys... Just microphone is there. We go. Just as you're doing that, guys. Um, just a quick flag that um, the toolkits sort of meeting cafe theology, where we're going to be looking at some identity stuff and some culture stuff. One of the dates has changed, so it's going to be Thursday, the 13th of February, and also um, Thursday, the 5th of March, and that's at half past seven in here. So just clock that. A couple of weeks' time, Thursday, the 15th of February. Do um, come along. It's going to be a really, really good evening. Okay, so the Gospel of John. I'm going to take a moment to um, just consider it, to introduce John as a person, his writings, and then we'll dig into the passage. So the Gospel of John was written by John, and we find him on the island of Patmos, which is um, sort of one of the Greek islands south of the kind of Greek mainland. And it's about 90 AD, so we're talking 60 years after the death and resurrection. Of Jesus. And if you've ever read John's Gospel compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're probably going to notice that it feels a little bit different. That actually John's Jesus is a Jesus from a different angle. And where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are getting in as a kind of historical, very practical account, John's doing all of that, but he's also deeply spiritual and theological. There's some beautiful truths, and that's where the I am sayings come in. And as you get to the end of John's gospel, he writes of his motivation. And he says that the reason that he's written this book is that you might believe. You might believe. That's his motivation. Jesus' salvation. That people through the ages will believe in all that God is. And John's got quite a simple but um, unique structure to drawing us into belief in Jesus. First part of the book, 
the gospel is the book of signs. There's loads of accounts of Jesus's miracles um, sort of culminating in his raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is a kind of precursor to his own resurrection. And then the second part, so uh, chapters 12, three to 21, are his whole journey to the cross. Most of it is centered around Jerusalem and him talking to his disciples, his arrest, accounts of his death and resurrection, and then his appearing again. And peppered throughout his book, through these two sections, are these I am sayings. I am sayings. And there's loads of them. So we've got, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. There's those seven. But also, bookending these seven signs, these seven I am sayings, these seven statements of who Jesus is. Are simple statements of I am he, I am he. So John chapter four, as his gospel begins, I am he. And then seven I am sayings, and then chapter 18, as the guards come to arrest Jesus, he says, I am he, I am he. And why, why I am? Why doesn't Jesus just sort of say, this is part of who? I am, this is my name. Here's a characteristic, why I am? The simple, simple wording. And it's because Jesus is going back to Exodus. And he's going back to that point in the Old Testament where Moses is before the burning bush, those stories that if we went to Sunday school, we will have learnt, where Moses stands in front of God, who's this kind of burning fire encompassing a bush, and he says to God, who are you? Who are you? What is your name? And God says, I am. I am. And so Jesus and this really simple phraseology is declaring this enormous truth. I am God, I am God, I'm God. And then as we unpick the I am sayings, we see more and more of his godness, his different characteristics. That's what all these different statements of light and binds and life and truth are about. And so we turn to the first bookend, chapter four, verses one to 26. And what's gone on here is that John's told us about Jesus' really, really early ministry. In um, chapter one, we've had a whole big poem called the Logos poem. Then in chapter two, we've had the world's greatest miracle, water into wine. Um, then, then we've had a bit of clearing of the temple. Then he's met a chap called Nicodemus in chapter three. And the really interesting thing about the meeting of Nicodemus before the meeting of the Samaritan woman in our text is that Nicodemus is exactly the sort of person that Jesus should probably be talking to. Nicodemus is a Jewish leader, he's a Pharisee, he's a man. But Nicodemus comes in the dead of night and the whole encounter is hidden. And then Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman and she's not someone that Jesus should be talking to because she's a woman and Jesus is a rabbi 
and rabbis don't associate with women in this way, in early Jewish thought. She's not Jewish, and she's on her sixth relationship, five marriages, one relationship later. Actually, she's a fallen woman. And the reason that she's at a well, this is going to be Jacob's well over here. It is a font, but anyway. Um, the reason that she's at the well on her own is because she's been shunned by all the other women. She has to creep there on her own because her life is in such disrepute. And so Jesus comes in the daylight when everybody can see, and he redeems her, has a conversation with her. And what John is highlighting here is that Jesus is for everybody. He's for the Nicodemuses of this world who look quite good on the surface, and he's for the Samaritan women of this world that probably feel like they should be hidden. So let's, let's read this passage together. We're going to pause at various points to draw some things out. First one. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. It's quite cool there, isn't it? Everybody gets to play. Really early on, Jesus is like, you guys crack on. You do some of the baptizing. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well. Just pause there for a moment. What John is recording here is another Old Testament reality because Jacob's well is in Genesis chapter 29. And it's a place where Jacob, who becomes the father of all Israel, is known as Israel, the father of nations. It's the place where Jacob sits down and meets his wife. And all his lineage, all the Jewish lineage, all of the 12 tribes of Israel stem from that encounter at Jacob's well. And so John is again showing us that Jesus fulfills everything, that there's this unity across Scripture, that Jesus is a true God, that all of the Old Testament has been crying out for him. And he's come to fulfill it all. Continuing on in verse 6. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Tired as he was from the journey. So John, Jesus, is screaming out, fully God, fully God, but still fully human tired from the journey because he'd been trekking through the desert in the Middle East. He sits down by the well. It's about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Historical issues, come and ask me later what that's about. But that initial question there is a relational one, a relational question. 
And so Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Doesn't quite get it there. It's all about buckets at the moment. And so Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is suddenly announcing a spiritual reality that meets the practical need for water. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And that's classic Jesus. That actually he calls out truth. Quite a convicting truth there to state that to the woman. But she's not repelled by it all. Actually, she draws close to him. Because there's something about Jesus that he is full of conviction, but he's full of compassion too. As you go further into John's gospel, John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery, it's the same thing again. Utter conviction coupled with utter compassion. And so the woman is drawn to Jesus because in Jesus she is known. She is known. And that's her greatest desire. And so we go on. Verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. The root of salvation is Jesus. Yet a time is coming and has now come, tension of the now and the not yet, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. So what's the journey? of this passage? What's the challenge for us right now? Well, it's to walk with a Samaritan woman. And the journey is one of satisfaction. And finding satisfaction in salvation and in the Spirit of God. We all want satisfaction, don't we? Um, in 1965, the Rolling Stones sang this song. 
I really like the Rolling Stones. Okay, we get the point. Uh, <laughs> okay. And the thing is, what's Mick Jagger's heart cry there? What's the heart cry of the Rolling Stones? There's a little bit when you look at the lyrics about girls and sex and romance and all of that, but there's actually loads of chunks of verses um, about politics and about the fact that sort of consumerism, buying things, doesn't satisfy. What is going on for Mick Jagger is exactly what's been going on for this woman, that he, that she, has been kicking around in this world trying to get satisfaction. And it hasn't worked. There's a restlessness there. There's, there's not a peace. And so we look at the woman. And she's gone for the practical stuff, like water, food, all of that. She's gone for the relational stuff, five husbands, one boyfriend. It's all been found wanting. And then she meets Jesus. She meets Jesus. And in Jesus, she finds that she is known and she is loved. And that's true satisfaction. And whenever I have seen people come to faith, actually that has been their story. I was thinking um, this afternoon about a young lad I worked with for a while, um, a few years ago, we'll call him Alex. Um, and Alex came from um, a really dissatisfied life on, on many levels, wrestling with loads of stuff. And then he really, really powerfully met Jesus. And the thing that happened when he met Jesus was that he found that he was known. He was known. He was called out of isolation just as this Samaritan woman was. Just as we hope Mick Jagger will be. Alex found that he was known. And in finding that he was known, everything changed for him. Everything sort of came in to line. Verse 19, Jesus truly knows her and is challenging, but also super compassionate. It's in Jesus that we find satisfaction. And so that is the first question to ponder tonight. Actually, where do you find satisfaction? Where are you finding satisfaction right now? in Jesus where are we at spiritually where do we find ourselves in this story it's okay if we move around I certainly do where are you finding satisfaction and then this passage tells us that satisfaction is all about salvation the knownness that salvation brings and the infilling of the spirit, life in the spirit. And salvation is this kind of active thing. And so in verse 23, where it says that a time is coming and has now come. What Jesus is saying there is that he has come in that moment, in this moment right now, he has come and your salvation is right here, right now. But a time is still coming. There is something of salvation still to come. That actually we are saved from something and we're saved for something. That we get to participate in our salvation. And in so doing, we're truly satisfied. And so we're saved from something. We're saved from ourselves outside of God. And Blaise Pascal, who was this 17th century philosopher, puts it like this. You need to grasp two things 
about human nature, our greatness and our wretchedness. Our greatness and our wretchedness. And we know that, don't we? Actually, as we pray the prayers that we prayed this evening, we know that humanity has this great capacity for greatness and restoration and dignity. And we have a capacity also for true wretchedness and to do some awful things. And God calls us out of the wretchedness into the greatness. Um, John Mark Comer speaks of it like this. He just says, we're image bearers, we're image bearers. The greatness is found in the fact that we image the living God, that we are made in his image. But we're also made from dust. Genesis 2, we're just made from the dust of the earth. And in the fall, that dust became a bit wretched. It was marred. And then in Jesus, everything is put right. Salvation sorts all of that out. And so that our dust, our very makeup is imbibed with dignity. And so we're forgiven and no one is outside of God's forgiveness. Not Nicodemus, not Samaritan woman. Jesus is for all. And then we are known. And in the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, when our dust fell from grace and our wretchedness became apparent, we almost went into hiding as a people. We weren't known. But then in Jesus, we're known. We're known. So Mike Pilavachi just puts it like this. With Adam and Eve, we went into hiding. On the cross, Jesus found us, and we never have to hide again. We never have to hide again. We are like the Samaritan woman in Jesus. We're known. We're known. And so if we're asking ourselves, how am I satisfied? Let's also ask ourselves, do you know that you're known? Do you know that you're known? And then we're saved for something. All this knownness is about being dignified and filled with the Spirit, being God's hands and feet on this earth, and ultimately about eternal life. But that's another sermon. And it's the Spirit of God who is pushing us forward, who is allowing us to know that we're known. So how are you doing on satisfaction? How are you doing on being known? And what do you think about salvation? If someone said to you, what does it mean to be saved? What would you think? What would you say? Just pause on that for a moment. And so in Jesus, we're saved. And we're saved for a purpose. And we're not left alone. Actually, Scripture, this passage, screams the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God that makes God, that makes Jesus known to us. In this passage, the penny drops for the woman. 
She stops talking about kind of buckets and things like that and suddenly gets it when Jesus starts speaking about the Spirit. And Jesus uses this image of, of Jacob's well, Genesis chapter 29. And he talks about the Spirit, the living water welling up in us to eternal life, fueling us, making God known to us. But the thing about us is that we need to constantly be coming to Jacob's well. And so we can get filled with the Spirit, a bit like this cup. We know what life is like. We know that we leak a bit, that we still live in a world that's not quite right. And so we leak. And the invitation in this passage is to constantly come to the well and to drink again of the Spirit and to get filled up. And then when we leak a bit, come again to Jesus and the power of the Spirit and we get filled up. And so it continues. Just as salvation is an active reality, so if being filled with the Spirit, so walking out our life right now is an active reality too. And then, as we land this passage, we realize that that's not the end of the story. That in many ways, it isn't primarily about us, that Jesus is beckoning us, that he wants us to know that we're known. He wants us to understand salvation. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit, but he doesn't want us to stay in a kind of holy huddle. He wants us to get out there, work for justice, love, and mercy, and tell people about him. And so this story doesn't actually end in verse 26. It moves on to verse 28 and 29, where we see what the woman does with the fact that she has met Jesus. So verse 28 and 29. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, and these are people who have shunned her and will not spend time with her, but she runs back to them and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Actually, the work of salvation and the work of the Spirit in this woman causes her to evangelize and to tell people about Jesus. That's the fruit of all of this. Which leads to a kind of final pondering, if you were, of how do we do that right now? We've got brilliant vehicles like Alpha, and I encourage us all to engage with that, to, to come along, to invite friends. But we recognize that it's kind of hard in this sort of post-Christian world that we find ourselves in. You know, our culture, England, was geared up to Christianity for years and years, you know, hundreds, hundreds, over a thousand years. And then suddenly around 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when Mick Jagger's singing about satisfaction and all of that, we begin to lose it. And we find ourselves in a post-Christian world where people know very little about God. And it can feel kind of daunting. I can feel daunted with a lot of my mates. But the Spirit of God 
is always moving us forward, is always sending us out. And God is at work in our world as much as he ever has been. I think there's something really interesting going on. And Mark Sayers says this, as cultural Christianity washes away, a blank canvas is appearing with the possibility of a new story being written upon it. What seems like a crisis when reframed through the eyes of the Spirit is an incredible opportunity. We are in a time where we've got an incredible opportunity to tell people about Jesus. As people know very little, we can just offer truth out to them. And it's all there in this passage. We're called to be countercultural, just as Jesus was, stepping over all the barriers, prepared to embrace someone utterly, utterly different to himself, prepared to be a bit contentious, possibly a little bit out of step with the world around him. You need to remember that when John's gospel was written, when all the scripture, the New Testament, even the old, was written, faith was not popular. Actually, this was a group of people, the early church, Jesus himself, speaking from the outside in. A prophetic people speaking into the world around them, saying, this is the truth. This is the truth. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about salvation. Come and hear what the meaning of life is. Come and understand what true satisfaction is. And that's what we're called into. We find ourselves in the same space again that Scripture was written into. And it is an opportunity, not something to be feared. So it's okay to be countercultural, to break with convention, just as Jesus did. And then ultimately, we do it all in love. And not a kind of weak, insipid, what is love, kind of a way. But the strength of love, the mighty reality of love. We love human beings made in God's image. We work for God's good purposes. We're not afraid to speak things that could even be misinterpreted, but we do it in love because we know who our God is. And so we close with this from a wonderful commentator on this passage in John. He puts it like this. Simply put, Jesus loved her and was prepared to breach age-old conventions to reach her. Our failures in evangelism are so often failures in love. Nothing is so guaranteed to draw others to share our living water than awareness that we genuinely care about them. People want to know that we care before they care about what we know. And that's where we land. We're countercultural because we're sharing a truth that isn't really recognized in our culture, but we do it all in love. And as we care for people, and as we're interested in people, in a world that is deeply isolated, and as they know that they're loved, they're drawn to this Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. Okay, guys. Um,